So, this week on the podcast, Roger and I sit down with Peter Shurstick Hughes to talk about his work, his thought process, and his understanding of philosophy, psychedelics, and religion. It's a fascinating conversation with somebody that I really admire. Um, you can see the brain on this guy. It is incredible hearing him pop off book names, references, footnotes. It's just, yeah, it's, it is exceptional. I'm very jealous. And um, it's been fantastic to talk to Peter. I've been mean to have him on the show for quite a long time to ask some of the questions around psychedelics and panpsychism and philosophy and science, naturalism, atheism, materialism, and how this entire world actually sits together. Uh, this conversation has heavily affected me. I'm really um, appreciative of his thoughts and his process around this. I've got about 50 books that I need to go and read post this conversation and I'm sure Peter's going to come back on the show in due course. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this. If you're watching on YouTube, I'd ask you to hit like and subscribe and hit that notification bell so you're reminded whenever we release a conversation when belief dies. This is especially important because we're moving to live streams. You might have noticed some of the episodes recently have been live streams and in fact the next episode, episode 103, is going to be a live stream with um, Bart Campolo. So that's a really exciting uh, change to the structure when belief dies. So make sure you turn those notifications so you're reminded whenever we release a conversation or go live and for everybody. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion, and life. Once a week, every week, we aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world, delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination, and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why someone holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's amazing to have you with us each and every week. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to another conversation on When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Roger. Roger, mate, how's it going? Hey, Sam. Yeah, really good, thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, it's, it's, um, a, it's a weird heat wave at the moment in the UK, which is quite pleasant. I know, I enjoyed it today. I actually managed to sit in the garden and enjoy some sun for a moment, so that was quite good. I'm pretty sure that's just too far, so yeah, well done. Um, anyway, <laughs> this week I'm also de de delighted to introduce Peter Sherstedt-Hughes. Peter, it's fantastic to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, Peter, I came across you for the first time when you were on Unbelievable, um, talking with somebody, I can't remember who it was, but, but Justin Briley as well, um, and you guys were basically discussing um, the idea of kind of experiences and drugs and the sort of ways that we kind of come to belief systems essentially and it was just a fascinating conversation and then I ended up following you on Instagram and on Twitter and just kind of saw this this world open up before me of, of somebody who's kind of into very similar things that I've been into for a long time but is far more academic and knowledgeable about them and um, I just thought it'd be fantastic to yeah get you on the show uh, with with Roger as well to kind of talk about um yeah, some of some of these subjects. So I think the first thing I'd love to hear a little bit, Peter, is kind of about you and about why you're so interested in both uh, philosophy and psychedelics. It seems quite a niche 
kind of category and quite a niche thing to bring together but you've, you're definitely doing it and you're definitely rocking it so kind of what why basically why um right well i oh uh, god I, I suppose i um i was always interested in co the question of consciousness and so i got into philosophy of mind rather than neuroscience yeah early on and um so you know that's a, you know what consciousness is which is a huge question and how it relates to matter another huge question or the explanatory gap as it's known and um and then uh, you know so i was teaching philosophy of mind uh, in in london and um and then um the the college wrote me into teaching philosophy of religion as well i thought i was well, not really my thing you know but, but i'll yeah okay I'll, I'll give it a stab and um part of that involved reading william james's varieties of religious experience book from 1902 wherein he talks about the mystical religious state um, and he is one of us to um, identify that with um, psychedelic states. I mean, he, the word psychedelic didn't exist then until 1956, but, um, you know, he was talking about uh, nitrous oxide intoxication, ether, so on. And um, how this gave you other forms of consciousness and how related to possibly related to spiritual matters and so on. So this kind of fascinated me, and um, and then just so happened that my brother, a younger brother, um, who's autistic, he um, he was once into mycology, the study of mushrooms, and uh, so you can see where this is going. And then one day in uh, Cornwall here, um, he said, Peter, I think these are this is a field full of magic mushrooms here. And I said, Really? Okay. So I was interested anyway in consciousness, um, and there was you know in our back garden, not literally a back garden, but in a field close to our back garden. Um, all these magic mushrooms. I checked them. I took them in London uh, a week later, small dose and then a big dose. And um, it, well, it was just, you know, it completely changed my interests, really. I didn't change them. It sort of uh, channeled them in certain path because suddenly I realized that, um, you know, what I had thought, I wasn't really into drugs at all as a, as a youth, you know, um, except for alcohol. But um, it made me realize that what I thought psychedelic consciousness was, was only a small fraction of the entirety. So, you know, I thought it was like kaleidoscopic visions, you know, stereotypical 60s stuff. There's so much, so much more than that. And then I, um, then I thought, right, I better read, better kind of, you know, read up on this and in terms of philosophy of mind. And then I realized it wasn't much, you know, there's William James. Since then, I realized there's a little bit more Gerald Hurd and, you know, like snippets in Marcuse and uh, Merleau Ponty and so on, but uh, very little, relatively speaking. So then I thought, okay, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll write a book about it, or partly about it, and then just got more and more into it. And um, and the more I get into it, the more questions unfold. You know, so it's just the beginning of a mystery which is related to consciousness studies, um, but which can have interesting implications for the field as a whole. And, you know, 10 years ago or more, when I started, people said, this is a career killer, you know, like, don't get into psychedelics and philosophy is you know, just, um, but it was so interesting, just naturally interesting that I couldn't resist. Really. So I, just, I just went ahead and then luckily it sort of worked out for me you now. So, so now I'm teaching philosophy of psychedelics, bachelor's, master's at Exeter University. We've got PhD students. We've got a colloquium in the psychology department now conferences going on and so on. So, it, you know, in my case, luckily it worked out because also, you know, it happened coincidentally with the so-called psychedelic renaissance. It's happening mostly in the clinical sphere where people are realizing that psychedelics not necessarily, um, you know, very bad for you, but can be on the contrary, quite therapeutic. So, um, yeah, luckily it's kind of tied in with that. Um, yeah, so that's where I'm now really. 
Amazing. Yeah, I've um I found that that area, especially kind of cl- the clinical trials, especially looking at sort of end of life care with with psychedelics and how they can be so beneficial to those who are facing their inevitable demise, but they can do so in such a altered way. So it's not, it isn't as just just the listener. It's not like they're on the magic mushrooms when they're, when they're dying, but it's they're they're dealing with the, the thought of death through this experience and um, when, when they take this substance it's um it's absolutely incredible and before we dive too much into that sort of stuff it'd be really interesting to kind of get your take i've i've spoken to many philosophers and i've spoken as well at quite quite le- quite a long at length or i should say um, about my own kind of experiences with psychedelics separately and whenever i've tried to bring them together before there's been a real um i guess disinterest in broaching these sorts of subjects. I kind of, I'd just love to get your take on kind of why you think it's so hard for philosophers to, yeah, talk and, and engage and and want to take this as as as, as a credible field of um, exploration. Mm. I mean, it's surprising from my point of view that that is the case, but it is the case, and I suppose there's a number of reasons. One is simply the fact that they are mostly illegal Class A drugs still. Um, you know, that's changing around the world now, but in Britain, at least it's still the case. Although I think the Prime Minister recently said that he might uh, reschedule um, psilocybin for therapy alone. So those things, are, these things are changing. Um, that's one reason, um, which means that it's hard to get funding for it, for something illegal. <laughs> um, another reason, I think, is the, a lot of the propaganda um, that we saw from the sort of 1960s onwards that LSD fries your brain and so on and so forth. So, you know, philosophers who use their brain are wary of, um, you know, disturbing it, <laughs> damaging it, if because, you know, if that's what they believe. Um, another reason, I think, is um, there's a lot of re- reductivism, especially in philosophy of mind. There wasn't 20th century more so. Um, so, you know, even this study of consciousness really only started about three decades ago. Because before that, you know, there's logical behaviorism and um, eliminativism and so on in, in the range which said there's no such thing as consciousness, really. It's just a trick of language or whatever. And so that legacy still lives on. Um, yeah, so, and then, of course, you know, there's this kind of um, notion that, you know, as opposed to criminality, there's a notion that's trivial recreation as well. Um, so, you know, how could someone serious, serious academic, you know, get involved with that? It's kind of laughable. So all of these things have converged and, and, and made it like um, not a not a big field at the moment, even though, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like uh, expands consciousness immensely. And so for anyone studying consciousness, I would have thought it's particularly important. But, you know, you have to take in historical context, of course. One of the things I've I've really enjoyed about listening to your lectures, Peter, is you've sort of reframed the history of philosophy for me, really, when you sort of go back to, well, Plato came to his dualism because he was tripping on some stuff. And then, you know, I, I knew the latest stuff like Sartre and things like that, but it really, really began to make me think, hang on, this kind of works on some level. Can, can you just say a little bit about, because basically you almost reframe a lot of Western philosophy through psychedelics on some level or another. Do you want to just mm. say a little bit about that so we kind of get mm. get just how wide-ranging mm. this is an, as an issue in philosophy? Well, I know you're interested, Roger, in uh, Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, and um, 
in his last book, you know, Two Sources of Morality and Religion, he, he actually, before me, makes this point that um, Plato and the great philosophers, although he focuses on Plato, um, he participated in these Eleusinian mysteries and other Dionysian festivals, you know, and Orphic rituals and so on, um, and um, had these kind of intense experiences, like what we'd call mystical experiences of duality and so on, transcendence. And, um, you know, Bergson, um, you know, quite forthrightly speculates that um, the, that these experiences um, that were had at these mysteries, which the Eleusinian mysteries last for 2000 years, you know, longer than Christianity has, um, they, um, it's all the same number, really, if you, if you start from the beginning, I suppose, but um, they inspired Plato's dualism, you know, where he's famous for his dualism and his theory of forms, transcendent forms. Um, and, you know, you see it in the Fido, for example, on the soul, you see that he's, um, that's where he first starts arguing for his famous substance dualism. And before that, he says he wants to be counted amongst the mystics or the, the worshippers, worshippers of Dionysus. Um, you see another text set in the Lysos River, which is the place of the um, lesser mysteries. And um, and then like in the Phaedrus, you get a basic basic trip report. You know, it was forbidden to speak about the mysteries explicitly, so you see it implicit there. Anyway, so if you know, it is speculation. But um, if, as Alfred North Whitehead said, uh, what was it? You know, the history of Western philosophy is but a foot, series of footnotes to Plato. And if Plato was inspired, at least in part, by by mystical experience, whether that's psychedelic is another question. Um, then you can see a direct sort of um, etiology, like cause, causal link between psychedelic intake or mystical experience, dualism, and you know the rest of philosophy to a certain extent. To a certain extent, of course, there are many causes for everything, an infinite number of causes, in fact. But um, you can see it that way, um, because and then when you read certain, you know, the philosophy of Plato, the, like the Timaeus and so on, is quite mystical anyway. The question as to whether the Eleusinian mystery, I mean, it's almost no one really doubts that there were there were mystical experiences induced in the Eleusinian mysteries because one of the main purposes was to get rid of the fear of death by going there. Um, but, and, and whether there was in, induced by psychedelic substance is another matter. I think it's more likely than not. They had to, to drink um, a potion of kaikion, it's known, of a specific dosage, and they had to fast beforehand, and they had to go into a darkened temple, all of which kind of suggest... And also wine in ancient Greece was basically psychoactive anyway. They always had to dilute it. Plus, we see, you know, um, you know, psychoactive use in history, not only in the Americas, but, you know, um, in Europe and the Middle East for going back thousands of years. So it's, you know, it's quite plausible that Plato did take some kind of um, psychoactive chemical. Oh, it would be implausible that he didn't really. And that that had an influence on his philosophy. Yeah. That, that's fascinating, Peter. Uh, I'll, I'll pass back to Sam in a second. But um, one of the things that you're kind of doing quite a bit is you're sort of talking about psychedelic experience and then also mystical experience and sort of choosing between the two of them and sometimes using them interchangeably. And th this is the area where me and Sam have talked a lot in terms of we've talked a lot about his experiences under uh, kind of various forms of psychedelics and then really comparing it to what I would view as my mystical experiences, sort of spirituality and contemplative meditation and various forms of this. 
And then also sort of, I'm a great fan of William James too. So I really love the way in which he's very good at trying to get an, an experience by going, it's a bit like this and kind of like that and almost like this. And so he's a brilliant person mm. at sort of explaining how experience works yeah. um, in that way. J just from your experience, just to be clear, would you view that as a difference between say, mystical experience without psychedelics or psychedelic experience or, or are they the same thing or I, I'm just wondering yeah. I, I don't really have a, a framework for it but I'm just wondering for you are they the same thing or are they different I see them as two overlapping circles like an event diagram mysticism and psychedelic experience so you can you can get mystical experiences which are not induced by psychedelics certainly holotropic breath work for example meditation um, and then also theological you know more kind of maybe scriptural revelations um, which just come about without any warning, you know, that William James writes about as well in the varieties, you know. Um, and then, but there are certain core um, mystical elements that are also shared with psychedelic experience. So, you know, the classic um, criteria, William James, you know, for ineffability, no experience, passivity and transience. But, you know, Walter Stace in his book, Mysticism and Philosophy 1960, has got this list of eight, which kind of um, are used today in clinical trials. So that's, uh, I probably can't remember all of them, but, you know, unity is a classic one, transcendence of time, of space, a sense of the sacred or the profound, uh, lasting happiness and so on. Um, that I think can be had in, that you can recognize in certain mystical experiences, not all, and in certain psychedelic experiences, not all. And then on the other side, where there's, psychedelics which are, there are many psychedelic experiences which you couldn't classify as mystical for example um you know maybe a trail following your hands not particularly mystical or a, a memory of your past your childhood or something like that is that mystical i mean it's a thin line how do you define mystical or just laughing at little gnomes or whatever running around in your carpet <laughs> things like this um so um <clears throat> and then you know like experiences like synesthesia you know Hearing colors, seeing sounds, that kind of thing. Is that mystical? I wouldn't really classify that as mystical. Novel qualia. And then, and that's just the West. And then there's this whole other discussion um, relating perennialism to contextualism, which is that, um, you know, when we here in the West take psychedelics, we've got this Christian, Judeo Christian tradition, which then um, not only influences our in report of the experience, but actually uh, influences the experience itself. So Stephen Katz, this philosopher, he argued this in 1978 that, uh, you know, um, all experiences are conditioned by culture. Um, but there's a lot of arguments against that as well. There's a lot of psychedelic experiences are completely transcultural, you know, of aliens and of timelessness and so on. So that's, you know, still a debate which involves, you know, not only philosophy, but anthropology, cognitive science, history and so on. Um, but then when you do look at the Americas, there are certain things which are the same, um, but certain things they frame psychedelics in very different ways. For example, like you'd take a psychedelic to locate a lost object or to curse an enemy or to become better on the battlefield, something like this, things that, you know, they needn't necessarily be therapeutic or metaphysical. So there's a vast array of psychedelic experiences, very hard to generalize. It's a vast array of mystical experiences. They meet somewhere in the middle, but uh, then I wouldn't, so I wouldn't say they're the same, no. They overlap. It's fascinating. And um, I think, so I've, I've just finished reading um, Galileo's Error by Philip Goff. Um, and he was kind of saying in that book as well, when he first started out in, I think, 2005-ish, um, he was being told basically, you know, don't 
don't go into this because it will it will ruin your career. You won't get anywhere. It's just going to kill you. But he's obviously doing extremely well now, which is which is fantastic. Um, but so he he this this just for the listener, this book essentially is kind of mapping out sort of three uh, possible paradigms of consciousness. So you've got kind of um like um a, a a materialist consciousness. You've got a dual consciousness. So kind of um you know uh, you something's acting on your physical body. Um, whereas a materialist or um, emergent consciousness would be something like you are basically your thoughts and your brain are your brain essentially it's the same thing and then panpsychism which is a really interesting kind of take on this and i think for me especially the sort of from my experiences and from my reading and and and, and meditation panpsychism for me seems to tick quite a few boxes and people like philip goth and um, annika harris and sam harris and, and and others as well um talk about this quite quite extensively this idea that that panpsychism which is not necessarily that everything is conscious but that the fundamental property of the universe or properties of the universe seem to be of of a conscious ilk and that conscious ilk changes as as it kind of as as matter comes together so things like us are extremely conscious things like a bat as thomas nagel said there must be an experience of what it's like to be a bat we can't necessarily understand what that is but there probably is and and how far down does that go it's it's, it's an interesting one but um kind of just setting that that picture um peter I'd, I'd love to get your take on this idea i've spoken to many christians um recently who and i'm speaking to one in the in the near future on the show who kind of think that there is this possibility to have christianity and panpsychism and pull them together um, and that they actually work and i'd love to get your take on the idea of panpsychism but also the idea of bringing religion like a classic especially judo-christian religion or the, yeah one, one of one of the big abrahamic three and saying actually panpsychism works against this it's a fascinating thought but yeah what what, what are your thoughts on it well, it's um, <laughs> a big question. I think, I mean, I, I met uh, Rupert Sheldrake a few months ago at this How the Light Gets In Festival, and we had a talk actually about philosophy and psychedelics uh, that should be coming out soon. But he's a Christian who's also a panpsychist. So they do exist. <laughs> um, I um, I mean, I'm not really a specialist in Christianity, and I don't want to say too much, but I think they're compatible because there are, seem to be, what, 40,000 denominations of Christianity. So I'm sure you can fit it in somewhere. Um, I, I mean, there's a, for example, the notion of the Holy Spirit, something that flows through all of us. Um, who was it now? David Scribby now. I think he said that, you know, this could have been influenced by this notion of pneuma, uh, you know, that you get in Aristotle or something flowing through life. And that can be seen as a kind of panpsychism, possibly, depending on what you mean by psyche psychism, some kind of pan protopsychism, perhaps. Um, so I think, I think it's, I'm sure you could, someone can make some theologian probably has already made the case that this is very compatible. However, on the other side of it, there is a history of, um, Christianity persecuting animism, uh, and animism, panpsychism are relatively similar, like two sides of the same coin. You could say that, you know, like, you know, trees have a spirit and, or some kind of mind and so on. Um, so you know, I don't know if you've read this. There's two essays that stand out with regard to this. There's um, Ludwig Klager's Man and Earth from the like 1910s, I think. It's kind of the beginning of deep ecology, you know, um, where he blames Christianity for devaluing the natural world, seeing that souls only exist in humans. And, and therefore, you know, what is really valuable is the uh, a transcendent world, afterworld. And then he um, sort of blames Christianity for... Um, dismissing nature, natural world to a certain extent. And in the 1960s, there's this essay on the ecologic crisis then, which is emerging in people's minds 
by um, Lynn White, where he says that it's the same thing, essentially, that Christianity has persecuted um, animist, animistic belief. It, it wants to just restrict mind to souls and souls to humans. And, um, and this is, he says this is responsible in large part uh, for the ecological crisis. A lot of literature has argued against that. You can see pagans, you know, talking about everything being for man as well and so on. Um, so there's two sides of that story about panpsychism and Christianity, really. Um, and I think there's no absolute answer to it because really it depends on, you know, what type of Christianity, what you mean by panpsychism, um, influences that might have ha been had. Another, another interesting element in this question um, with regard to looking at non-Western forms of psychedelic experiences um, is the conquest of the Americas by the Roman Catholics, um, they sort of persecuted all these um, animists because Amerindian cults are generally animist and that's tied in with their psychedelic use, um, you know, necessarily, it seems. Um, and my friend, uh, Edward, uh, Luis Eduardo Luna, anthropologist, for example, says this is nothing new from the Roman Catholics. For A good example is... Um, um, in the 8th century, Roman Catholics came to Northern Europe and cut down this tree of Thor, which is a symbol of paganism, you know, and um, and um, cut it down, sort of showing the sort of superiority of Christianity over nature worship. So a lot of things there, you know, and you could don't necessarily have to identify nature worship with anim with panpsychism or animism. But, you know, you see these general trends. So in, in, in the book, Gallo's Error, um, Philip Goff, one of his sort of, um, not arguments for, but one of his, his, like, this is quite interesting, is that for him, panpsychism makes the most sense of, like, you know, the current climate crisis, right? If, we're, if we believe that trees are conscious to some level, it changes how we respond to them. I mean, it, he also says it raises quite a big issue for, for, for veganism as well, because if everything's conscious, then you're kind of stuck into 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 kind of what you can eat you're, you're very limited to nothing essentially so um it, it, you know, that's you know, a bit of a bit of tongue-in-cheek maybe but a really interesting idea kind of around actually how um moving away from a classic dualistic sense of kind of consciousness and matter and actually panpsychism saying that that kind of comes through everything actually that that does change how you respond to the planet which yeah it, it, it's definitely a fascinating conversation um anyway I mean, this is why i always this is why I always uh, say that, you know, if only Spinoza has been chosen above Descartes, because Descartes is the one who sort of um, solidifies that bifurcation of nature that certain types, at least, of Christianity seem to promote, emphasize. Um, Spinoza brought them together again as in this monism where God, where the one substance he names God or nature and all of matter, matter and mind are both expressions of that one thing so that means you get a parallelism which is a type of panpsychism which means that all of nature has intrinsic value um but of course he was he was suppressed you know ex excommunicated by his fellow jews books banned by the church so uh, t history took a different path but you know i always hope for a return to some kind of neo-spinozism you know perhaps yeah one day maybe one day um so I have had a lot of people on the show who are deists, um, or deists, however you want to pronounce it, um, and obviously kind of lots of theists as well, and people like myself who are like agnostic atheists. Um, 
one of the things a lot of people say is that something like, you know, the start of the universe, you need to have a God to begin. And even consciousness, sometimes people say you need to have some sort of entity to kick it off. Um, so I guess kind of my question to you, Peter, is you know, could consciousness be a deistic presence that um, theistic religions have almost built a structure around and, and claimed ownership of? Um, well, when you say deism, I mean, I understand by that word, like that would God sort of triggered the universe as it were, and then let it, let it lie, run away, you know, let it. Yeah. So therefore he's not, God is not, um, present at the moment that he was at the beginning. Right. So, um, I mean, for a start, I don't really accept that the universe began, you know, like this is, and there's a lot of, like, again, coming back to Henry Bergson, um, you know, the, the idea of the Big Bang was, of course, um, conceived by a Catholic priest. I forgot his name now, but it, it, it in a way, it has been argued it's a Christian concept in the sense that, and don't, you know, science, you know, in the West, of course, has a legacy of Christianity behind it, um, in the sense that, you know, it's creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Um, Bergson's got, in the creative evolution, his book Creative Evolution, has got this amazing argument against the idea of nothing, absolute nothingness. This is a contradiction in terms, an oxymoron. Because when we, the word nothing really means replacement, you know, in basic way, for example, if I say there's nothing on TV, I don't literally mean it. There's something on TV, but nothing of interest to me. If I say there's nothing in the other room, I don't literally mean that there's air, there's space, right, and dust and whatever, but nothing of interest. So when when one, the, the meaning of nothing means replacement with something you're interested in for something you are not. Therefore, when you say absolute nothing, it would be a replacement of everything with what? There is nothing with which to replace it, which means that it cannot happen, right? So therefore, if there cannot have been a nothingness in the first place, there couldn't have been creation out of that. So I don't see the need for a god to sort of trigger it off in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> so Peter, just to say, we we had um, a guest on last week who was a Christian theologian who was arguing exactly this as well. And um, I, I think one of the critiques that will be made of me in that episode is that I didn't push back hard enough against his idea that creation ex nihilo, ex nihilo was nonsense from his point of view. Um, and and he, he was very much sort of talking from a sort of panpsychist point of view of viewing God as sort of woven through absolutely everything and everything sort of cooperating in God. So he, he is a, a theist, but a sort of open and relational theist. So he's sort of seeing it as this kind of system of things of which god is sort of in in the middle of all that well um yeah and that, in that sense i suppose you could see that you know if that's a process theologian he's probably pan experientialist type of panpsychist so there's there's a typical there's another example of how panpsychism and christianity can come together um yeah i mean so the question of creation out of nothing i i think is I don't really accept part of that concept, nothing, right? But um, the question about consciousness throughout the universe, different different matter, of course, he, because even if the universe is infinite, it could still have some kind of overmind, you know, cosmic consciousness or something like that. That's a different issue. I mean, that's, I mean, I, so I did my PhD on panpsychism, which is usually kind of human down, right? Human to uh, mouse to insect molecule or whatever right but does it the question the interesting question is does it go up as well <laughs> um so this I, I mean i don't have an answer to this but i would say the following that i'm quite one of the things i've studied a lot is 
the explanatory gap, the hard problem of consciousness, the mind-body problem, call it what you will, the mind-matter mystery, you know. And there's no agreement about this fundamental mystery. A lot of people think they know what the answer is, but no one really agrees, right? So, um, this question really relates to this, uh, this question of cosmopsychism or pantheism, whatever you want to call it, like a, a greater mind, you know. Um, essentially, I suppose, in, in a kind of analytic philosophical sense, you could say that, you know, the proposition that the brain is sufficient and necessary for consciousness um, cannot be proved, right? You can't prove it's necessary because of the problem of other minds, you know, you can't get into like, um, let's say a tardigrade, you know, water bear, whatever they're called, and see whether it has any kind of basic consciousness. You can't become it, you know, it's Nagel's point again about bats, you know, you know everything about its physiology doesn't, still doesn't necessarily tell you about its phenomenology, if it has some. Um, so we can't say that the brain we don't we can't prove it seems empirically that the brain is necessary for consciousness that could be other and it also if you believe in machine sentience you know robot consciousness um that would also mean that you know that would be a relevant question because if the brain is necessary then a, a machine simply cannot be conscious by that um criterion but we can't prove it um also the question is whether it's sufficient you know um so I think a human a brain human brain is necessary for human consciousness. However, is it enough? Is it sufficient? You know, like but again, coming back to Bergson, for example, um, you know, consciousness sort of flows through reality through the Elan Vital, you know, vital impetus, and that that is part. You know, without that, you wouldn't get human consciousness either. It's or, for example, with Spinozism, you have the infinite intellect, of which our our ours are finite intellects, finite minds. So it's not you don't simply need the brain you need something above it as well so we don't know i think no one can really determine that question um about that proposition about necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness so therefore if, if a brain we don't know that a brain is sufficient and necessary could it be that there are larger structures that could also engender or um be correlated with a greater mind which you could then i feasibly go all the way to the top with and call god or infinite intellect or something like that it doesn't need to be religious god of course you know spinoza's god spinoza said god doesn't love you he doesn't get care about you at all right or aristotle's god you know the prime mover he's just thinking about himself thought thinking about itself you know it's completely a religious and cosmopsychism really is a word for that that's used now it's kind of neutral indifferent god in a way you can't really use the word god you know just talking about greater minds i'm open-minded to that as it were um, I don't know. I mean, the interesting thing again about psychedelics is that you, you, there certainly are experience, intuitions of this, revelations of this greater mind. You know, your mind is part of something greater. A bit like what I've argued in this chapter in the book coming out soon that um, uh, Spinoza's in, um, intellectual love of God, this experience, is somewhat akin to experiences you can have on, for example, 5-MeO-DMT, of, uni, you know, like timelessness, unitive, effacement of subject subject and object sense of profundity and so on um so you certainly get intuitions but to what extent are intuitions uh epistemically valid you know it's like you know sometimes you have these experiences on when you're on lsd or whatever and then you come out of it you think what a load of rubbish you know but at the time you thought it was absolutely the truth <laughs> so, but then the interesting thing is how do you prove it you know if it's not an empirical question then it's unprovable 
So where where does that leave you? In a state of agnosticism or what? I don't know. You tell me. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything we do. There are three ways you can support When Belief Dies. Firstly, would you rate When Belief Dies in Apple Podcasts and over on Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog, podcast and YouTube channel. All the links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. Yeah, the idea of kind of um, being able to explore and explain qualitative data or qualitative experience, whatever you want to use, language you want to use, is 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 kind of one of one of these big big questions, right? And again, going back to kind of Philip Goff and his book Galileo's Error, he kind of points at Galileo and says, you know, we, our, our kind of modern day science was never designed to deal with 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 the qualitative, just the quantitative. Um, and it's, it's 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 tricky. I mean, I don't know. Do you do you think we're going to make headway in? I mean, loads of people say yes. Loads of people say no. Like, it'd be interesting to get your take. Like, are we going to make headway in this space anytime soon? I think there's there's more. <laughs> I mean, the real answer is I don't know. I mean, I you know I've got some sympathy for Colin McGinn's mysterian position, which is like humans are just not capable of knowing. Um, and I don't think basically I don't think we can ever gain certainty in this i don't you know like following carl Popper, you can't gain certainty in science you know you just have working hypotheses that are um you know working until they're falsified you know it's never at certainty um and that's in empirical science when it comes to issues which are not necessarily empirical some people will say they are empirical that's another argument i don't think they are um i mean they're certainly logical as well as empirical for a start you know that can't be denied about contradictions and so on whether that can make headway i don't know i think again another interesting thing about psychedelic experience is it at least gives you an impetus a motive for exploring certain theories which seem wild in normal prosaic consciousness um gives you sort of an impetus to say no come on i you know this there might be something here right <laughs> so um charles hartshorn for example one of uh, whitehead's kind of whiteheadian philosopher process theologian again um he argues that one of the reasons people don't believe in panpsychism is because they simply can't imagine forms of consciousness that are not you know normal human states of consciousness so at the very least he calls it the prosaic fallacy so at the very least at the very least you know psychedelics offer alternative forms of experience which then at least make one more sympathetic to understanding to researching rather um these issues so um I have hope. I think we will get farther. I think we get farther, like in this kind of apophatic way. So we say, like, this can't be the right case, you know. Like, for example, I think psychedelics falsify behavior, logical behaviorism. You know that there's no consciousness. That consciousness is just um, behavior. I don't think that's feasible when you're completely still in your body, but traveling the universe. You know, just seems completely absurd. 
Um, so you can sort of eliminate things, but even then people won't agree with you. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's a very, very deep question, but I think essentially we know that our current knowledge of physics is incomplete, not just with relativity and quantum physics, but in the sense that it needs to bring in psychology, you know, the mind, otherwise it's not a theory of everything. And, uh, hasn't, it just, this is the explanatory gap. We just, you know, the correlates of consciousness merely present the problem, you know, the question is why they're correlated. So it's interesting, actually, uh, having, you know, having studied this explanatory gap in philosophy of mind, then looking at a lot of psychedelic research today, for it, because it says like, um, you know, these mystical experiences that psychedelics um, seemingly elicit, we have hope that we'll soon understand the sort of uh, a neural mechanisms by which that is, um, that comes about. And, and we're sort of pursuing this naturalist agenda. To, to naturalize it. The problem with that, of course, is that, you know, you don't explain the mystery by invoking another mystery, you know, this is mind matter mystery is one of the biggest ones, you know, you can't just assume that um, you can use that to explain another mystery. Because we don't because we don't know the relation between mind and matter, we don't know whether psychedelic experiences can give us veridical or delusional content. You know, so 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 this is a deeper question, and this is why philosophy is really needed in these, in these um, in this psychedelic renaissance. You know, to make things like that clear, it's just not clear to many people. And it, I, when I read your work, Peter, I, I get the sense that actually you've come up with quite a coherent philosophy. Like it seems like drawing on Nietzsche and Bergson and um, Whitehead and various others, you, you seem to have really sort of constructed something that comes out and makes sense of psychedelic experience mm -hmm. i i heard some people have called you the psychedelic nietzsche haven't they that's their sort of nickname for you yeah. where, where does where does nietzsche come into all this uh, well uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was alexander bard who called me that first i think he's a swedish pop star and uh and futurist but he a philosopher but he uh yeah I, i'll never forgive him for that really um how it all comes about it's um started really with nietzsche um so for me at least personally so when i was 18 you know studied philosophy and a bachelor's introduced to nietzsche I'd never heard of him before in school of course britain they don't teach philosophies tragic really scandalous anyway and then read, started reading nietzsche and just you know boo, just you know as an 18 year old really just blew my just <laughs> just the way it undercuts all your assumptions you know especially regarding morality but also the number he's psychologically very insightful you know um so Nietzsche, I got interested in this notion that Nietzsche had called the will to power, or Villa's Macht, which is basically the same as the Canatus and Spinoza. It's kind of drive. It doesn't mean the drive to greed, literally power necessarily. It can include that. It just means drive to, there's a sort of a drive to development, um, which, you know, it's a bit like the survival instincts that you find in evolutionary theories, perhaps, or something like that. But it's not just survival. It's, it's Survival is the lowest form of it. Um, you know, in order to gain power or to develop, you need to be able to live, you know, so it's, it's the survival instinct and the will to power on different degrees of the same principle. Anyway, so where's the will to power? So when I looked into it, I realized, okay, it's, it's largely influenced by Schopenhauer's philosophy, the will to live. So I looked into that and I realized Schopenhauer was a great philosopher, despite what Nietzsche later on said about him, although, of course, he was influenced by him first. And, um, well, Schopenhauer then, yeah, this, there's this underlying will. It's not consciousness, it's, uh, but it is psychical and it's mental. You know, it's like a subconscious drive. You can become conscious of it, you know, then it becomes, you know, conscious. 
you know, ambition or greed or something like this. Um, but what was that exactly? Um, could it be, Schopenhauer argued it can't be reduced to matter. He gives good arguments in his books about that. Um, so it's kind of, so that's the beginning of panpsychism really from the will to power, this underlying mental drive, subconscious drive that underlies everything, not just animals, but all forces for Nietzsche, if you look at him carefully. Um, so in one sense, you could I, almost, I wouldn't really like to say it, but you could almost identify Nietzsche as a kind of, you know, pan proto something like this. Um, and then, um, well, at Warwick University, I was taught by Keith Ansel Pearson, who had pictures of Nietzsche in his office, as well as pictures of Bergson. So he, he also also teaching Bergson, creative evolution, matter memory, and some other things. And um, got me interested. And yeah, he speaks about this Elan Vital, um, which is this kind of current that I mentioned, the sort of flowing through um, evolution that is conscious, mostly. And that if it's automated, it sort of becomes matter. Um, it is a striving to develop, you know. And it's um, like like Nietzsche's, and he, Bergson even speaks about the Superman. You know, there's a kind of Superman like uh, virtual in in evolution. That there's this kind of striving towards it. So you can certainly see Bergson Nietzsche's um, harmonious in that sense. Many many people do. You know, um, and then and then through that, I realised when I got into Alfred North Whitehead, I can't remember. That was after university, really. Uh, at least my undergraduate studies in, in university, Alfred North Whitehead kind of was heavily influenced by Bergson, but also others like Spinoza and Leibniz. And um, he kind of uh, systematized the, the these ideas a little more and introduced some really interest, interesting new theories and fallacies and so on. And, um, and so, but the, although they're not compatible, exactly compatible, there are elements within all of them that you could sort of take out, extract, and recrystallize, as it were, in something new. And then Spinoza, I got into um, after that again. I mean, I've always read into Spinoza, but I seriously got into him after that again because of the historical bifurcation I spoke about, you know, um, with Descartes. And he's a great, great thinker anyway. Um, in one way, it's superior to Spinoza because why it brings in the theory of evolution and, and um, links it to a kind of monism that Spinoza has. Um, but historically, Spinoza's very interesting at that sort of, um, you know, as we've spoken about, at that point at which Western culture bifurcated nature into, and then bifurcated nature into mind and matter, and that followed science and religion, you know, and, and, and tragically what it says. Um, and then William James as well, as you say, but he hasn't really created a system. I mean, Whitehead said of William James, he's amazing, you know, thinker. He's got all these nuggets of like insights and whatever, but he never really creates a system. His last book, though, his collection of essays from former pieces, Pluralistic Universe, he uses Bergson, Hegel, and uh, Fechner, the panpsychist, to create a new uh, kind of almost like a panpsychological system, even though people use him against panpsychism with regard to the combination problem from 1890. That that a book that book twenty years later kind of overcomes that issue, um, and also why it's useful in terms of panpsychism. This is something Philip Goff is based on, mostly based on Russellian monism, and Russell was Whitehead's student. Uh, I think Whitehead's superior in the sense that, although you know, but Russell's great, but um, Russell's superior in his process view and his notions of prehension, where perception is not. Um, 
and this he gets partly from Bergson and his notion of sympathy, but it's that when you perceive something, that something goes into you, you it becomes part of you, you know, so there's not that division immediately. In other words, all perception from the very basic elements of actual entities, you know, which are, you know, um, at the lowest level, um, they involve a, uh, a combination of object and subject. So from that fun, from that basic start, you, you get rid of this com so-called combination problem, which is stalling um, a lot of people with panpsychism. So it kind of offers more, hum, you know, sort of a coherent view generally. But, you know, I don't, you know, I'm still studying, so I don't really know. You know but, but also, I mean, calling William James unsystematic is, uh, it comes good to me as a psychologist. You know, the famous quote is Henry James's novels were better psychology and William James's psychology were better novels. That's <laughs> basically one of the things that's often said. But um, just just one thing to sort of ask you is that the, the thing that just confuses me a bit in the way you talk about the learning we do from sort of or can do from sort of mystical or psychedelic states is on the one hand, we sort of start with Plato, who really ends up with a sort of radical dualism as a result of sort of the mystical experience, if you like. Uh, whereas I, I would view it sort of the rest of it really tends towards sort of monism or pantheism or it's something like that something that's more sort of unified do, you, do how, how do you put those two things together really that for some people it seems to lead to this dualistic view of the world and then for other yes. people it leads to this much more sort of harmonious monistic almost view of the world yeah well i i'd say first of all that the insights gained from psychedelics are not always in, in accord you know like i say i mean for a start when you look at the amerindian experiences that i mentioned um, you know, locating objects or precognition, even see in the future, you know, things like this. Um, and obviously, psychedelics do elicit hallucinations as well. You know, I would never really believe the elephant walking through my front room on mushrooms was real, right? So you have to accept a certain degree of hallucination. Um, there are like borderline cases, which, which are very difficult. But um, so, yeah, someone has a dualistic experience where they transcend their body or something like this and where they see death and go through it and other people have a more monistic one um i mean it could be it's always very really hard to to gauge you know the experience from the report of it or the interpretation of it because even during the experience you might be interpreting it to certain extent you know and then certainly afterwards when you recall it you might only re recall recall certain elements and of course you you know it seems feasible that you will try to fit them into some system of which you're already kind of sympathetic with um so what I, I i really see psychedelics more as um opening up questions and sympathies rather than answering anything necessarily you know so you get a monistic insight you see you 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 think that you've experienced timelessness uh and then you start thinking, you know, well, isn't like um, doesn't experience isn't experience conditioned by time? How isn't that as, as the contradiction terms? And then you look at you know literature, you look at Spinoza, Plotinus, whatever, right? So it kind of I, th I think they're more like um, in in many respects kind of elicit they're, they're question inducers rather than answer inducers. Um, but 
like, you know, as you know, as we mentioned, William James said they have a certain noetic quality to them. So they might at the time and afterwards as well seem more real than your everyday experience as well. So then the question is, well, why why do you need to believe anything anyway? You know, like, I mean, why not? Um, why not just have a number of working hypotheses? And you work on it, you know, you have the intuition, the experience. And then you look at, you know, like dualism, for example, you see whether it's feasible or not, or monism, or whether it's feasible or not, com compared to other theories, you know, metaphysical theories. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the kind, I suppose I'm saying that as a philosopher, you know, so you have certain, it gives you certain insights, or well, intuitions, and then you sort of work on that, you know, it just, it's a bit like, um, I don't know, an astronomer getting a better telescope, something like that, and being able to work on different, you know, seeing different spectrums of light or, or different you know places in the universe uh doesn't doesn't necessarily explain the universe but it gives you greater field of foot to work in and that that helps me understand a little bit you know when me and sam have talked about this a little bit so for sam sort of some of it, his experiences on psilocybin were very sort of crucial for him sort of realizing there was no god from his point of view and then i look at say the famous miracle of Marsh Chapel, where you have these seminarians who suddenly they're all deeply in love with God because they took psilocybin and sort of report mm. that um, later on. It sort of helps me to understand that really that's kind of what's going on, isn't it? People are sort of bringing whatever their set is to that particular thing. And then it's sort of fitting yeah. into that sort of cultural setting. Yeah. Uh, Bill Richards wrote the paper in 2008, uh, was it called now? Phenomenology of Psilocybin, something like that. And he said, what psilocybin does is it unlocks a door. But then what happens after that is really dependent on yourself and your culture and the greater universe, as it were, you know. So it unlocks a door and you see things from different perspectives and you get different types of consciousness you could literally could not imagine or dream. Um, what you do with that is another question. You know, what you do with that. So, um, yeah. So, I'm I'm very skeptical of people who say they've you know travelled to some diamond realm and seen the angels and whatever, and they're, therefore that's true. You know, it doesn't prove that in any way at all. At the same time, if you have a like let's say a, a flash of Spinoza, as Roman Roland said, you know, um, under some kind of LSD experience or DMT experience or something like that, you know, it might suddenly someone who's never thought about that before, never had that kind of experience, it might um, open up their mind to exploring it further and not me merely dismissing it as impossible. It'd be very strange if you had an experience of uh, like a monistic pantheistic experience uh, that was a hallucination if monism and pantheism were true. Right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, they're, they're tools, they're, they're tools for co exploration of consciousness. That's what they are. They're not necessarily the results. Well, they might be. Certain experiences might be vertical, might be, you know, objectively true, but you can't determine it within the experience itself. But then, the, then we go back to the old question, the question we said before: How do you determine it anyway? These consciousness questions, you know, maybe that's impossible. Maybe and I guess the uh, the whole diamond realm thing's out the window. I'm, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> so, so one of the one of the experiences that Roger was alluding to. Um, was when I took um, quite a high substance of psilocybin. Um, so yeah, anyway, it was it was it was quite high. It was quite a high substance. Um, and basically went went out into into a ravine. So I live up in up up in up in West Yorkshire, um, in Halifax, in in the in the Calder Valley, and went up into a into a ravine, um, into an old abandoned Victorian ravine, basically where they used to um, used to mine and and, and get kind of like um, 
essentially Yorkshire stone and um, just sat amongst the trees and um, in this place I essentially screamed out to God and I was like God if you're real I've never been as open and as free as I am right now like reveal yourself like, like show me who you are and kind of like mirrored um, C.S. Lewis's idea of Aslan of this kind of personal uh, God who's wild but also kind of real and tangible and comes in their own way and I was like I'm happy for you to be in whatever form you want to be in but I want to know that you're true um, and it was in that place that I basically found that um, for me consciousness broke down so that my perception of myself and my ability to rationale and perceive and interact stopped and I began to realize that I was almost like becoming where I was like this 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 weird fleeting feeling and moment where psychedelics happens to kind of push you through the door and then shut the door behind you and go you're not coming back until this episode's over um which i can access when i meditate now and then it seems to be this 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 framework of um the self not being real and actually the reality is that we are embedded or imbued with the world around us and this moment and we live in the narrative that our minds are consistently churning thoughts emotions feelings etc consistently come to the fore like we're never sitting still right because we're always trying to move to adjust pain etc like we're always responding to what is emerging within us and um it was in in this space in this ravine that i basically realized that um sure there might be a god okay that there, there, there might very well be a god but from the god that i expected to be true it wasn't coming it wasn't pulling together like the strings were already and i was trying to pull these strings together but these strings weren't allowing myself to 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 draw them to a close and i guess it, it's really interesting hearing hearing you you and roger vibe off off this idea of um things not being able to be settled within a psychedelic experience and I don't necessarily disagree but what I've found is psychedelic experiences have enabled me to access areas within my own conscious state that I wasn't able to access fully before and I still think there that the fully is a very kind of you know, loaded term I fully understand that but uh, you kind of mentioned it before Peter this 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 idea that there are there are spaces within us that we don't necessarily always access and actually uh, and I think Sam Harris is as well where there's this almost like um taking a psychedelic allows you to puncture into a different sphere that you weren't able to access before and okay that sphere still is its own sphere but that access that puncture means you're more readily able to go into that space again and for me it's, it is that sort of self-breaking down space it's the no matter where we go with the idea of God or consciousness or, or, or whatever it is, the, the idea of us, as in I'm an individual, I'm Sam, I have my job, my family, etc., etc., et cetera, sure, some things are physically tangible, I can hold my children, etc., but my view of myself, my view of my role, most of the things that build in my worth, my value, etc., are constructs that have been brought about by my family, my upbringing, the world around me, etc., so... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just talking lots, but Peter, do you have any thoughts on this sort of idea of, of self breaking down when on some sort of psychedelic experience? Mm. Well, I mean, the classic thing in psychedelic literature is so-called ego loss, you know, or self loss, um, as you're sort of explaining uh, this view that, you know, your your notion of yourself doesn't exist. It's very, I mean, it's very com complicated immediately because it depends what you originally meant by self. So like, you know, you speak about what is known as narrative self, you know, you know, you were born there and you grew up this way and you educated like this but um some people don't have that like galen strawson for example panpsychist he says he doesn't think of himself as the same person he was a year ago you know ever he thinks it's very odd that people do that um and also there's like kant speak speaks about three general types of self as uh in a sense there's empirical apperception which is your self-consciousness as you, the narrative self more or less but then there's something called pure apperception which is a kind of um 
an underlying self that combines all your concepts, your memories into one, you know? So even when you think of yourself as like, um, you know, even when, when someone says, you know, um, I have no self in terms of like some kind of inner soul or something, you still remember that, right? You still remember that you have these concepts, self-consciousness concepts and these memories and that it's, it's, you're inculcated and so on. But nonetheless, there's a memory, right? That retains it. Some kind of, something brings it all together. And this is this is then the condition for self-consciousness. It's not self-consciousness itself, but it's some kind of you know underlying form of self, it seems, right? So is that lost? I mean, when you have an experience of ego loss, for example, you know, you'll if you you know if you remember it, then there's something there still continuing on. Um, so then the question becomes, well, what's memory then? And that is another, you know, massive question. <laughs> Um, and how does it relate to consciousness and how does it relate to the notion of notions of the self and so on um but yeah i mean um you can lose you know ego loss can mean a number of things it can mean uh you know losing the narrative self as you say it can also mean it's like splitting up into five selves i've done that you know um and you don't know which one's you you're, you're one part of you is looking at you and even expressing this obviously you're bringing in you know, kind of assumptions that there's a you then underlying it all. And then there's, of course, another form of ego loss, which is unity. There's a classic unitive experience where you um, become one with a, well, unity can mean many things. It can mean unity of mind and matter, unity of God and nature, unity of subject and object, unity of past and future and timelessness, um, unity of here and there, like space. Um, <clears throat> all of those involve a certain loss of the general concept of oneself. So, I think, um, and yeah, psychedelics, as you say, then can induce that, can induce that, doesn't always. Um, but then it sort of allows you to have a phenomenology of types of self, types of self loss as well, which then is just sort of enriches, I think, enriches the idea of who you are, you know. So not only is it an interesting scholarly activity, psychedelic phenomenology, but it also, of course, you know, it's uh, personal because it's all about you <laughs> it's all about you, yourself um so so these uh questions yeah become are both academic and personal at the same time you know that's what's why i'm surprised not many you know it's not really explored more yeah it definitely breaks my heart that it's not um not not number one on like on like everyone's radar but definitely high up there you know top, top at least top 10 people at least top 10 um and i i, I think i think you know, that it's changing i think like um so, so you know um there's a, there's a, the psychedelic philosophy um, group we've got at Exeter, but we're also, I mean, you just it's increasing again. You know, there's a lot of people around the world begin, you know, getting more into it seriously, not just kind of new age philosophers and so on. And then, um, I mean, it could have a profound effect on society. And that's what they thought in the '60s. Humphrey Osmond, again, in 1957, coined psychedelic. Um, he said, you know, he was a psychiatrist, but he was he was emphasizing the philosophic, religious, and social implications of these things. Um, as more important than mere clinical therapy, this is like yeah, we can use this for helping people, perhaps you know. This is what, but the, the but the great there's a greater um, potentiality for these things that then was of course suppressed in the '60s due to well, a number of reasons. Timothy Leary is one of them. Um, so now that we get back into the psychedelic renaissance, of course it has to be clinical. You can understand why it's become clinical at first because who would be against you know therapy? That would be a cruel cold-hearted person right so 
So you, you sort of legitimize it by bringing it into medicine. It's also quantitative, empirical studies, blah, blah, blah. Although those empirical studies, interestingly, are based on old philosophy, Walter Stace especially, which is very questionable. Um, but nonetheless, this um, you get rid of these negative connotations, criminality, recreation, and so on. And But, you know, potentially, if that continues, uh, we can see greater implications for society, I think, with psychedelics. In other words, like for me personally, it made me much more interested, as I said, in um, questions of aesthetics, you know, it's beautiful, you know, everything became more beautiful or more gothic or sublime, questions of theology to an extent, you know, like questions of overmind or whatever. I'm still, you know, I'm not, I don't have a religious belief as such, but um, it, it just it just broadens one's interests. So uh, and you know these interests then can could have profound effects on society. You know I'm not saying it would make society better or not. There all I should also point out there are many dangers with psychedelics. You know so people can have seriously bad trips. I mean not physiologically but phenomenologically. Um, people can have um, certain physiological defects as well afterwards. You know it's rare but it does happen. But you can say that for all drugs I suppose. You know paracetamol included. But, um, yeah, we, it's very hard to predict the future now with regard to these things. You know, there could be a massive right wing backlash from Daily Mail or something. Once again, you know, that could happen. Could foresee that quite easily. In fact, it's starting. That there was what was really it's quite interesting to see what happened. But so 10 years ago, when the psychedelic renaissance kicked off, everyone was saying, you know, psychedelics are great and then they shouldn't be illegal. They, they're, they're therapeutic and then they're not going to, you know, melt your brain. And then um, as they started doing clinical studies at university. Then suddenly, industry became involved, became interested, because you know depression is a huge industry, for example, and SSRIs, you know, like Prozac, um, are generic now. They're not patentable. You know, they ran out of patent about 20 years ago. Or so, so if any new drug comes along that can, could potentially be patented or at least protocol be patented, suddenly there's this interest. And then, of course, things became exaggerated. So they're saying, you know, like psychedelics are this wonder drug, you know, a new snake oil, a new stem cell therapy, or something like this. And then, in the last year or two, I've noticed that then suddenly people are saying, well, you know, hold on a minute, it's not all good. <laughs> there's 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 certain side effects that can be had. You know, these are very serious. Uh, substances, you know, they, they're not necessarily necessarily therapeutic. Um, they are, you know, they can be very serious. Like they can be, you know, like, uh, they can be shocks to the system, like a war zone or something like that. I mean, especially drugs like 5-MeO-DMT. I mean, they're so incredibly powerful that it takes months to really process what the hell has happened with that. <laughs> I mean, like really months. And um, and I don't, not all people come out of it in a good way. And some people can't process it. That's what, another interesting thing with relate with regard to that is, so we've got this colloquium every couple of weeks at Exeter and people like, usually neuroscientists come in from Imperial or whatever and speak about what they're doing. And they talk about like integration of psychedelics, very important, you know, you give someone a very high dose something for the first time, who's never really thought, you know, they have this, Let's say they have this kind of you know, timeless monistic insight, something like this, right? Needn't be like that, but let's say they do. Um, how the hell do they process that? And they say, well, then we send them psychologists to integrate them. And I ask, you know, how do, how do you integrate that? How does a psychologist integrate that? And I don't, I don't know, we talk about their issues and, you know. But what you really, I think, what you really need, the best way to integrate something like that is like, at least in part, to, to talk about different metaphysical frameworks. Because if you've had an insight which you cannot explain is ineffable, um, 
it might be because you've never come across kind of monism before or dualism whatever it may be right timelessness the concept of it you know um so uh, by offering these metaphysical frameworks you could at least potentially offer people options of thinking okay so maybe this wasn't this incredibly profound experience wasn't mere delusion but actually maybe there's something to it you know maybe there's some grain of truth in it you do this by offering metaphysics and i i would i would suppose that that would help integrate that experience into their life yeah so so that i mean that's another potential future for for the way the research is going on now what I find absolutely fascinating about that, that Peter, is that um, the, the same thing happens in spiritual crises as well. So when people have some kind of spiritual experience, they can't integrate. And I, I quite often run retreats for people and quite often people will come to me with an experience and go, this happened. I don't know what to make of it. And well, I've told my vicar and they, they've gone nuts about it, too. You know, whatever, whatever's happened. And I've always found exactly what you say is if I can find some framework, oh, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux talked about that, you know, a thousand years ago, you're going to be fine. You know, if I can find some some mm. kind of framework to offer them that goes, these things do happen and other people have had them too. I, and it's it's normalizing very, very much in the same way that you do with psychiatric problems as well. You say, yeah, the, these things happen and, they, you know, they're not necessarily pleasant, but they are sort of there's some ordinariness to it and other people have survived this too. Um, so mm. I just find it's okay. really fascinating that that sort of crossover between the two things oh, yeah. there that is that's interesting great that you do that i didn't realize i mean another there's a negative aspect of it in a positive way by which i mean this that um you know clinicians are you know like Galileo, like philip goff talks about the framework of science is from galileo has sort of um is but it's quantitative rather than qualitative by its methodology alone um, and there's some methodology, but if you turn that methodology into metaphysic, it becomes just that another metaphysic that you can choose. So like um, a lot of clinicians think that from my experience, at least, and from things I read from them, that, um, you know, these experiences, a lot of these experiences must be delusional because physicalism is correct. Materialism is correct, right? And but they're not philosophers. They don't know what they mean by physicalism. There's varieties of physicalism, as you said at the start. You know, psychoneural identity theory, emergentism, epiphenomenalism, um, and you know, and so on. Um, eliminativism. These are all different forms of physicalism. They're not. They 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 don't accord with each other. And um, there are you know there are strong issues with physicalism as well. You know that for example. We don't know the current we don't the current level of physics is not complete yet we know that and um we see that you know our concepts of matter have changed through the ages from mere extension with descartes including now including charge and spin and and so on and so forth you know and who's to say that that will not continue you know we don't really know the nature of matter at this stage you know no scientist would say that yeah we reach now the end we know what matter is right because we don't know that we don't know again this is related to the explanatory gap again you know we don't know therefore no if we don't know what matter is we don't know how we cannot know how it relates to mind fully um so therefore I, I you know i see physicalism or naturalism is often in the guise of naturalism but really it's physicalism this is just another alternative metaphysic in line with monism or dualism or whatever every single one i admit including monism panpsychism has got a lot of serious issues Right, there's no perfect metaphysical framework, but but um, you know you go to inference. You can't prove it empirically, so you use inference the best explanation, abduction. 
Um, and that's, you know, I think I use that. I think I suppose everyone does really, but that brings me to my my view at the moment could change. But pointing out that physicalism is another metaphysical framework uh, that, for example, includes a bit of magic, right? In sense of emergentism, if you believe that is the prevalent view now that mind emerges from movements and matter. Uh, this is this is not science. This is not science. You know, this is not. There's no known upward cause, causal um, law in science, or downward causal mental causation. You know, this doesn't accord with what we know about physicalism either. This is what Jay Guan Kim brings up really nicely, even though he's a physicalist. So, because this still remains a mystery, it, we you know because we don't know what reality is, we we can't therefore say what delusion is. You know. Calling something a delusion means that you know what's real and what's not, and nobody does. So, and especially when certain experiences are noetic, I think you should certainly keep an open mind. And as I say, at least offer, you know, offer options. Not that I know which option's true, but you know, I know that there are more options. I know problems, there's no default view, basically. There's no, there's no metaphysics, which is, you know, unquestionable. And you can't avoid metaphysics. No, it's, it's so true. And I think, um, I, I mean, just, just very, very briefly touching on the classic kind of like Christian framework that we've, we've had on the show repeatedly and sort of atheistic framework. I think this is why I really enjoyed the sort of um, exploration framework, which is just that this space is a space of, of not going, this is the answer, right? And going like, we must all like pin our colors to the mast and go, this is it, we're going to go down this road, but actually going, this is actually a really exciting time to, um, ask the questions i mean just the other day i was reading a um reading a um some sort of random newspaper online but talking about the potentiality um, and it's very very light touch of a of an anti-universe because it would explain why spin happens in a, a single direction and also um kind of anti-gravity and, and 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 dark matter and these things and how it would actually give reason behind these things because we don't we don't understand why they're there or what they're actually doing. Like we can pretend we do, but we don't actually know. Um, but again, that's a very high flying hypothesis. Um, Peter, I could literally talk to you all day. Um, this has been so fascinating, absolutely incredible. But I mean, I'm, I'm aware we're, we're, we're running out of time. And I want to draw things to a close and let you get on and back to your family. So uh, kind of, could you help the the, the, the listener and, and the audience who watches on YouTube to um, know where they can find you, link us to some of your work, help us understand how we can connect? Sure, I will. Can I just say one thing about what you just said, though, before I do that, about the relationship between Christian, Christianity, atheism, and physicalism, with materialism? Um, often, you know, atheists are, uh, and physicalism are seen as the same thing, but needn't be like that. Like Schopenhauer, for example, was an atheist and an idealist, not, not, a, uh, not a physicalist. And interestingly, there's even a case to be made that physicalism is quite in accord with Christianity, you know, with a bit of bifurcation of nature, that souls only exist within humans, um, and the rest of nature, therefore, is dead, you know, that in other words, purely physical, panhylism is a better word, really. Um, you can see how physicalism is pretty much in accord with that kind of old fashioned type of Christianity, at least, you know, there's souls, which are separate from the physical, and are the remit of religion. And then there's matter, which have matter, which has no soul, is a remit of science. Uh, the church is happy with that. And uh, science, as we understand it in England, um, is happy with that but they're both 
premised on this bifurcational nature, which is, you know, Whitehead Spinoza question, right? So, you know, um, that's, well, that's another talk one one day, but <laughs> just to point out. Um, okay, how do you find me? Um, well, I, I work at Exeter University, although I live in Western Most Cornwall. Well, if you want to email me, it's peter at philosopher.eu. That's my website then, philosopher.eu. Um, often post sort of, if I, I, I what I read, I often post uh, on Twitter. I mean, like quotations there from, so you can find me on Twitter, PZ Shester at Hughes. Otherwise, uh, what else? YouTube channel, Ontologistics, um, etc. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, I'll make sure there are links to all those in the in the description. And you're talking about um, you, you kind of mentioned that you're you're writing a new chapter for your new book. Could we give a bit of insight into that? What what is this new book? What's it about? Um, well, it's it's I've got a book that just came out a few months ago, Modes of Sentience, which is it includes a lot of whitehead and panpsychism, and also a bit on n-dimensional space in relation to sentience. That's an, another talk again. Um, but um, I wasn't referring to that. I was referring, yeah, there's a new, we've got a, an edited volume of Bloomsbury Academic coming out in a few months um, called Philosophy and Psychedelics. It's the first uh, academic collected edition, I think. It's got 15 chapters in it. So I wrote, co-wrote with Christine Hauskeller the introduction, but also I've got, um, yeah, this chapter that I mentioned called um, The White Son of Substance, uh, Spinozism, and the psychedelic amor de intellectualis, which is the intellectual love of, I spoke of. So then I'm really trying to connect as much as possible Spinoza's metaphysics with um, psychedelic phenomenology, sort of, you know, comparing them, but also looking at Spinoza's life to a certain extent and how it relates to deep ecology to a certain extent and so on. Anyway, so that's coming out in July, I think. Um, as, as other really interesting essays in there. I mean, not, well, not that mine's interesting, but there's um, essays on white lot, you know, Fuel and Whitehead there as well, and, um, the, you know, critical theory and uh, Amerindian stuff. So a lot of different angles. I mean, it's just, you know, such a huge field already, philosophy and psychedelics, so many angles. You can, you can look at the politics in terms of, we haven't even spoken about that, you know, the ethics of patenting uh, certain psychedelics which have been used for millennia and stuff like that, you know, the, the, the politic, just, yeah, so that's that niche is just unfolding all the time anyway so that's philosophy and psychedelics bloomsbury academic coming out in the middle of 2022 then we've got a, another conference at Exeter university in late june mostly for postgraduate students um talking about their new research um then i'll be at the how the light gets in festival in uh, hay on why in um when's that late uh, early june yes yeah, so talking about philosophy and psychedelics doing a little class there also talking about some other things. I'm with Peter Godfrey Smith, who wrote this book on animal life, you know, octopuses and whatnot. Uh, and um, I'll be in UCL London, actually, in April. Give me a talk. Um, a few other things. Can't remember now. Need to speak to my secretary. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the main thing, I suppose, is that book coming out. So do look out for that. Amazing. Peter, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing your experiences, both of you. You know, very, very interesting uh, themselves. So, uh, you know, much more to be said, obviously, about it all. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, please head on over to YouTube and to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online hit the link in the description. 
Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. And I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.